0: This is Paul Rayburn, and you are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are talking about Medicaid with an expert on that vast government program. Find out what might be in store in terms of relief for the people who are served by Medicaid. Welcome to the Washington Health Report. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. Our guest is Tim Westmoreland, a professor of law and a senior scholar at the Georgetown University Health Law Institute. He's an expert on issues of health insurance, tobacco, and AIDS, among other things, and he was director of the federal Medicaid program from 1999 to 2001 under President Bill Clinton. Tim, good to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, all of a sudden, health care issues, which were somewhere in the sub-basement for, for many years uh, following the Clinton health care proposal, I guess, are being talked about all over Washington. And I think people, among the many things being discussed, Medicaid and possible Medicaid reform is one of them. Can you tell us a little bit about what the conversation is in Washington about Medicaid?
1: Sure. It's part of a larger conversation that... As you look at private health insurance in the country, more and more employers are choosing to drop the availability of private health insurance for their workers. And even among those private uh, employers who provide private health insurance, the cost of those, uh, those programs is going up for the worker much faster than wages are going up. So a lot of people who might in previous decades have found themselves on private health insurance are now finding and are going to find increasingly themselves without any health insurance coverage. A lot of those people turned to Medicaid. Medicaid was designed to be a program for very low-income families, people with disabilities, and the elderly. And so it doesn't really f- completely fit with all of those people. But a lot of those people are turning, especially for pregnancy care and for child health care, to the Medicaid program.
0: That's right. Now, if employers are, are dropping insurance in many cases... That includes many middle-class people and even, even more prosperous people, presumably, who would not be able to turn to Medicaid as a remedy. That's
1: certainly true. You have to be very poor and meet other criteria to um, be eligible for the Medicaid.
0: Remind us what those what those criteria are and what the what the income cutoff is.
1: The joke in the med- Medicaid circle is you've seen one Medicaid program and you've seen one Medicaid program. There are really 50 different Medicaid programs administered by the state, but by and large... To be eligible for Medicaid, you have to be at or around 100% of the federal poverty standard. Some states go as far up for children and pregnant women as 185 or 200% of poverty.
0: And the poverty level is what? It's about $14,000 for a family of
1: three, I think, these days. But that's not enough. You have to be very poor and something else. And that something else is usually very poor and a child, very poor and a pregnant woman, very poor and totally disabled, unable to work or very poor over the age of 65.
0: That's that's an eye-opener to me because I thought Medicaid, I thought uh, income level was one of the prime determinants.
1: It is the prime determinant, but it's necessary but not sufficient. You have to be very poor and something else.
0: How many people are covered by Medicaid?
1: These days it covers about 25 to 30 million kids, about 14 million family members, About 6 million senior citizens who are, most of them also covered by Medicare, but Medicaid provides them with some different benefits, and about 8 million people with disabilities. So what's that, 40, about 50 million people.
0: So that's, uh, I mean, among other things we could say about that, that's 50 million people who are extremely poor plus disabled or something else. That's that's an interesting comment in itself, that there are 50 million people who can meet those stringent uh, requirements.
1: And, you know, just to hammer the point home, if you're very poor, no income, no assets, and don't meet those criteria, you're not eligible for anything.
0: You're very poor and you have no health care.
1: You're very poor and you have no health care. Your best hope is to go to a poverty clinic or to a hospital emergency
0: room. Okay, so what happens if you do that? That was my next question. You go to some kind of a clinic, an emergency room, you're a poor person, you don't have a credit card, uh, what kind of care do you get? What happens?
1: Well, let's answer those questions differently. Poverty clinics around the country... Um, have as their mandate to take care of exactly those people.
0: What, what is a poverty clinic?
1: There are a variety of different, one, uh, different kinds, but the main one is called community health centers, and the federal government pays grants around the country to establish community health clinics that are outpatient clinics for people, by and large, with no health insurance Some of them have Medicaid, and Medicaid will pay for their services separately, but it's for people to come in and get well child care or to get sick child care or to get some prenatal care or to get some treatment for the flu or infectious diseases, but it's all basic primary care, and it's paid for on a sliding scale. If you are at 200% of the poverty, they'll ask you to pay more than if you're at 100% of the
0: poverty. And so that's poverty clinics. What about emergency rooms? What happens there?
1: First of all, people aren't supposed to go to emergency rooms for primary care, but a lot of people, if they can't find any place else, do wait until they go to uh, they go there. Emergency rooms are also a declining breed. Um, a lot of hospitals are closing their emergency rooms these days. But if you're really sick, if you've been in a car accident, if you've been been injured in some fashion, you can go to a hospital emergency room, and no matter what your insurance status, you are guaranteed that they will treat you at least until you're stable now they can and that's another federal law those hospitals in turn don't necessarily get paid for treating you they just are required to do so and that's part of the conundrum of why a lot of hospitals are con- reconsidering whether they're going to keep open or closed
0: now at the risk of sounding like a, a character out of some charles dickens uh, novel uh so we have 50 million people covered by medicaid and the rest are taken care of in poverty clinics and uh emergency rooms what's so bad about that
1: Yes, and I I don't mean to suggest that there aren't still a lot of people who are covered by private health insurance. There are. I think it's about two-thirds of Americans, maybe even three-quarters, are still covered by private health insurance. But that's a declining number, and it's especially declining among small businesses. And, again, that even where you do get insurance offered the cost of that care, the premiums and the cost sharing to the workers is going up much faster than wages
0: are. For those of you who have joined us mid-conversation, you're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. We're talking to Tim Westmoreland, a professor of law at Georgetown University and former director of Medicaid in the Clinton administration. So private insurance is declining, but even if we're focusing mostly on poor people here, is there a problem with, with letting that chunk of the population fall to poverty clinics and emergency rooms? I mean, aren't they going to get pretty good care there?
1: I'm sure they get good care there to the extent that those facilities are able to care for them. But there are good uh, study data out there showing that uh, people without health insurance don't get the primary and preventive services that you'd want them to get uh, to avoid serious and continuing and chronic problems later. They get diagnosed much later in their illness, and that's true for both AIDS and cancer and heart disease. And consequently, they're more difficult to treat. They don't survive as long, and they're more expensive to treat.
0: More expensive. So we wind up paying more money than we might have to. Or we, save, we save money on those who, who die without care
1: that is the hard truth of health economics if you just look at the dollars it's cheaper for sick and disabled people to die and in fact our federal budget process sometimes takes that into account and makes you makes the government look like it's paying more if it keeps people alive longer
0: now we've done a, a thorough job of laying out the problem here what are the solutions what what do you think should happen and what do you think is possible in the current political climate?
1: The first thing that I, should, I think should happen is that people should look at how effective Medicaid has been and consider the expansion of the Medicaid program. Medicaid has, is run at an administrative cost that's lower than any private health insurance. It's done lots of pickup work uh, picking up people who fall out of all kinds of other safety nets. And it does it at a relatively efficient cost got a lot of problems. The program is different in every state, but Medicaid should be expanded so it covers more people along the way.
0: Now, some of our listeners, as you know, are physicians and and other health professionals. What do they think of Medicaid? uh, And is it partly true that the reason why Medicaid is efficient and delivers care efficiently is because it underpays uh, health professionals?
1: What your physicians and health professionals will think about Medicaid will vary widely state by state. In some states, Medicaid is among the best payers in the state, especially in those states that have traditionally had low rates of uh, private health insurance. In other states, Medicaid pays, you know, 50 cents on the dollar or something like that of costs. So first of all, I'd say it's very different state by state, and there's no federal minimum payment to a health professional. But secondly, I assume that those people who are going to, especially hospitals, who are going to take care of people would like them to have some form of health insurance rather than no form of health insurance because chasing bad debt is an expensive thing for hospitals and clinics and providers to do, and it is this, medical debt is the single largest cause of, med, of bankruptcy in the U.S. So a lot of people will see them just as bad debt in the long run. Now, having said that, you are correct. Medicaid pays badly in some states. But that's a decision made at the state, uh, state level of how much they're going to pay for
0: it. Now, you ran this show for about three years, I think, until, until the end of the Clinton administration. What were you able to do, particularly because this program, so much of it devolves to the states? Were you sitting there uh, in Washington constantly trying to keep things running and operating, or were you able to, to steer that, that ship? Medicaid
1: um, as a policy program is a constant push-me-pull-you kind of program. The feds can attempt to require some things as a condition of the amount of money they send the states. The states, however, are ultimately in control by administering the program. So it's a back and forth kind of interaction. One of the things that I am pleased that I was able to do was to give states additional flexibility to be able to enroll more people with disabilities at higher income levels. There's some very complicated internal revenue-like calculations of how to figure out how people are poor. States had for some time been telling the federal government, there are a lot of people with disabilities out here that we'd like to cover, but your regulations won't let us. And so I was able to expand that, and a bunch of states have taken advantage of it and expanded the health care services for the, uh, expanded Medicaid eligibility for people with low income. Another thing that it's probably not on point for most of your listeners, but Medicaid has a bent towards paying for nursing home services for people with disabilities and senior citizens and not paying for their health care services for them to stay at home or in their community. And I tried really hard to be able to expand non-institutional opportunities for those people.
0: Now, we were just about out of time, but uh, just in a nutshell, uh, what do you predict? Uh, What changes might be ahead in Medicaid, either at the end of the Bush administration or with the new administration? Of course, we don't know who that is, but what do you think might happen?
1: The Bush administration is, as it has throughout its tenure, attacking the Medicaid program, trying to cut back every nickel they can find. They've been doing it in private, in back rooms. They've been coercing and extorting the states into making deals for them. And one deal that is made was one state is not available to the next state. And, you know, it's just not transparent, not easy to follow, and not good for the program. And when the Congress is starting to look at some of those backroom deals and saying, now, wait a minute, this isn't protecting either the law or the poor people. The only thing you're doing is cutting back so that you can say that you've cut back on some budget spending. So I think there's going to be a lot of oversight over the next few, few months, over the next 18 months. Surprisingly good news about the campaign for the next administration is one of the most conservative Republicans, Mitt Romney from Massachusetts, has a health insurance plan. Schwarzenegger has a health insurance plan. So I have high hopes that whoever is the next president, one of the uh, top agenda items for him or her, will be Um, expansion of health coverage.
0: Well, we started on a rather down note about uh, all the problems with Medicaid and coverage in health care for poor people. Uh, And I think we'll stop right there on a slightly cheerier note that the future looks a little bit brighter. Our guest has been Tim Westmoreland, a professor of law at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Tim, thanks so much for being with us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. You have been listening to the Washington Health Report on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, we'd love to see your email. Please send it to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks so much for being with us.